My name is Sally Turbyville. I came to Northeast Presbyterian in 2016. After I had been here for a few things, I thought, let me go to the church service and see what the church service is like. And the first Sunday that I came, the pastor is reading scripture. And I caught myself crying. I was so thrilled that the word was being taught in the pulpit. And it was a total blessing to me because that had, I had been missing. I knew then I was home in my heart. But then when I started meeting the family here, it was as if these, this family here was like my blood, that we were born as brothers and sisters. It has been a pleasure and my life has grown spiritually and in the meantime, I have lost my husband and they have held me up when I couldn't hold myself up. God gave me the love of people. He gave me the love of talking and sharing Christ with others. It could be at a shopping mall. It could be at a restaurant. And thank God he does put me in the people's path that I can speak to. And especially if they look at me twice, that says, Sally, I want to talk to you. And so I take that. And, and God has blessed me. If I meet someone, I start up saying my question is, where do you go to church? And then I listen to what they have to say. And if I detect anything that they might not be in the church that they feel like they need to be in. I'll say, come visit my church. We have all age groups. We've got from the smallest of children all the way up to the elderly people like I. And it takes care of each one of our needs through the word. If someone tells me that they are not a people person, they not real gifted at talking to others, I tell them I was that way at once. And when I discovered the more I learned the word, the more I wanted to talk to others about the Bible. It is based when God tells us to assemble ourselves together in his name. That gave me strength that I could start talking to others about Christ. And what it is that God wants us to do is tell others about Christ, that we're not perfect if we live it. But what he wants of us is to know Jesus Christ, have Jesus Christ in our hearts, and tell others about him. Amen. Amen. Sally Turbyville, thank you, dear sister. I don't know if she's here this morning, but can we just thank Sally? There she is. There she is. 
Praise God for these four amazing NEPC stories. They're on our website. They're on our social media. And if you would be willing to share them, get the word out, I know God will use them. This is our final week in a sermon series called Draw Near, which has been an intense study of Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. If you would turn there one more time in your Bible, and as you do that, I want to encourage you to memorize this section of Scripture if you haven't already. It will take you about a half hour. If you sit down with this part of God's Word and memorize it, you will not regret it. There is so much here. The Word of God, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Just that final part of this magnificent paragraph, as you see the day drawing near, will be the focus of today's message. Let's pray. Lord God, we've been called to go. Thank you for Sally's example to us, her testimony about going out in her community, radiating with the love of Jesus and being willing to open her mouth in kindness and love so that people could hear the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, O Lord, for a holy stirring in our hearts, something, O God, that you must do in us to give us that passion and that zeal to go to do that which is uncomfortable sometimes and to engage with others that they would hear about the love of Christ. Holy Spirit, now we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer, amen. Three brief points this morning with today's sermon. Let's go with the gospel. What's the day, what's at stake, and what's my job? We're just focusing on this clause of one sentence that says the day is approaching. So what is the day, what's at stake, and what's my job? What's your job? What's your job? What is God calling His people to do? First of all, what is the day? The day that the author of Scripture is writing about here is judgment day. You could call it the day of reckoning. You could call it the final day. You could call it the end of history as we know it. This is the day when the Lord Jesus Christ 
will return. I know this is Christianity 101, but we need to remember it. We need to hear it again. Listen to a few passages of Scripture, not many. I I could have chosen 50 different passages of the Bible, but listen to just a few passages of the New Testament about the final day. In Matthew 12, 36, Jesus says, I tell you that every idle word that men speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. That's the final day. John 6, 39 and 40, this is the will of my Father who sent me, that all he has given to me I should lose nothing but raise him up at the last day. This is the will of the one who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him, everyone who sees Jesus and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up in the last day. 2 Peter 3, 7, we hear it constantly from others, not just the lips of Jesus, but all of the New Testament writers. 2 Peter 3, 7, but the heavens that now are in the earth by the same word have been stored up for fire, being reserved against the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men, the day of judgment. 1 John 4, 17. In this, love has been made perfect among us, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because even as He is, so are we in this world. The Bible tells us clearly, repeatedly, in many different ways, that there will be a final day. It will be a day of judgment. It will be a day of reckoning. It will be a day when every human being has to give an account of how each one of us has lived our lives. Now, there is a a good question that I know people ask. I know I've asked it and Christians ask it and certainly non-Christians ask it. And here's the question. Well, pastor, why has Jesus not come back yet? Because if you read the writings of the New Testament, it certainly sounds like the writers believe that Jesus could come back in their day. And I would say that is absolutely the case. When you read the New Testament, the writers think Jesus may come back in my lifetime. And so, it has now been almost 2,000 years, we're actually living in a unique time of history, Because within, for many of us, within our lifetimes, not only are we coming up on the literal 2,000-year anniversary of the death and resurrection of Jesus, but we're also coming up on the 2,000-year anniversary of many of the writings of the New Testament. But it has been now 2,000 years. And how do we explain that? And does that in some way mitigate minimize what the Bible says about Jesus returning? No, oh, that's a great question to ask, and no, and there's two main reasons I want to share with you. I think God may have more than these two reasons for why Jesus hasn't come back yet, but there is at least two very clear reasons why Jesus hasn't come back yet, although, of course, he could have if, he had, if it had been God's will before now. Both of these reasons are found in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 10. I'm just going to read them first. Here's the two reasons why. 
The first reason why we don't need to be concerned about why Jesus hasn't come back yet is that God does not have the same perspective on time that we do. God does not have the same perspective on time that we have. The second reason is that God is far more patient and gracious than we could ever imagine Him to be. Those are the two reasons. God doesn't have the same perspective on time that we have, and God as gracious and as loving as we see him to be, he's actually so much more gracious and patient and loving than we could ever imagine. Listen to 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, that's quoting Psalm 94, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. As long as the Lord chooses to tarry, to not return, is a reminder that first of all, He doesn't see time the way that we do. If we go literally on that verse, it hasn't even been two days for God since Jesus rose from the dead. If a thousand years is like a day to God, God has a different perspective on time, but even more wonderful is this, friends. God is so much more gracious and patient than we could ever imagine. I think about the New Testament writers. I think about Paul. I think about Peter, and they long for Jesus to come back in their lifetime. But think about how big this world is. All the people groups all around the world, so many of them that the biblical writers didn't even know about. And if God had chosen to come back while the New Testament was being written, and His people had been the people saved at the day of Pentecost, and all the saints in the Old Testament, God would still be a loving and gracious God. But the fact that over the last 2,000 years, the gospel has gone out to so many people groups, to so many corners of the world. And now we know that in heaven, every tribe, tongue, and nation will be gathered around, tells us once again that God is more gracious and more loving and more patient than we could ever dare think. Now, there will be a day. There will be a day. Perhaps it will be in our lifetime, but the Lord Jesus is going to come back. That's the day. Second of all, what's at stake? What's at stake is eternity. It's people's eternal destinies is what is at stake. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God has put eternity into man's heart. You know, we have no evidence that any other animal... Any other creature that God has made on this earth ever thinks about its eternal destiny. We have a cute dog in our house. He kind of looks like a walking teddy bear. Makes friends everywhere he goes. There, I have no reason to believe that my dog ever has spent one moment of his life considering what happens when I die. Where do I go? Usually it's, I wonder if they're going to drop some food, and I'm just going to keep looking at them with the biggest eyes I can until they do that. There is no evidence 
than any other animal that exists. And God has made some incredible animals. God has made some really highly intelligent creatures even. Orcas and ravens, and you can, you can look it up. Uh, chimpanzees, obviously. Smart creatures. Is there any evidence whatsoever that they, those creatures spend even one second considering what happens after I die? No, there's not. God has uniquely made us, friends, uniquely made us humanity. He's given us these incredible powers to build skyscrapers and rocket ships that go to the moon and go to Mars and all these incredible things. And you know what else he's done? He's put eternity in our hearts. Every single person knows one day I'm going to die unless God comes back first. And I am going to stand before my creator Eternity is at stake. You know when you go to the doctor's office and they hand you the forms and you fill out the forms and um, you, know, you fill out your age and your height and your weight? Let me say this. Christianity is not a box you check on a personal inventory at the doctor's office. Oh, I'm this age. Oh, yeah, Christian. Check that one pre-existing conditions. I'll check a few of those. The, the Bible tells us that we will give an account, that this is serious. This is not something that we check when we identify, okay, I'm this, I'm that, and I'm Christian. No, this is eternal destinies on the line for every single person. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for man to die once and then face judgment. The Bible says that every single person will give an account of their lives before God. And we can trust that God will judge each one, each person that's ever lived in the most completely fair and equitable way imaginable. A pillar of our faith is that God is just. There is not even the slightest hint of imperfection in Him. So when people give an account, God's judgment will be perfectly fair. There is only one group of people who will get what they don't deserve. That is Christians. That is those who have bowed the knee to Jesus and said, Lord, I am not good enough. I don't measure up. There is a blackness in my heart that runs so deep I cannot even understand it. But you have provided the antidote, the cure in Jesus. Only those people who are covered with the blood will not get what we, what I, what you deserve. What's the day? The days that God's coming back. What's at stake? Eternal destinies. What's our job? Let's end with this. What is our job? First of all, let's talk about what our job is not. This is what our job is not. Our job is not to save people. That's not our job. Our job is not to save anyone. And this is one of the things I love about being a Reformed Presbyterian. That we recognize that salvation is monergistic, which means it is solely from God. God has to do the work. God has to make us alive. 
Our job is to tell. Our job is to, to make introduction. Our job is to point to the one who has the power. Our job is not to save, for we cannot save. Praise God it's not up to us. What a pressure there would be on Christians if God said, it's up to you to determine who is going to get into heaven. But God says, no, that's my job. Your job is to tell people. And let me be the one that awakens hearts. 1 John 4.19 says, we love because God first loved us. In salvation, God is the one that does the work and makes our hearts come alive. How could I explain it? You know, before I went to Israel, I knew that Israel was a country. I knew that there was a lot of biblical history, most, most of the history of the Bible taking place there. But until I went, I hadn't really experienced it. I knew about it, but I hadn't experienced it. And you know what salvation is, friends? It's when stuff that, for so many, they've heard it so many times before, but when through the power of the Holy Spirit, the gospel comes into your heart, and you say, even beyond your own ability to understand, I believe this. I can't even fully understand why or when or how, but I believe this. These words are true. This is the message from God. This is the message I need. John Wesley said that when he was saved, he said his heart was strangely warmed to the truth and the power of the gospel. Our job, friends, is to go out and tell people. Tell people about this God that loves to save, that is patient and gracious, and to know that He is the one who will do it. We're called to point others to Him. We're called to be ready. A verse that we all need to know is 1 Peter 3.15. We all need to know this verse. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. What a beautiful verse. Be ready, Christian. Always be ready at any moment to say to someone, I want to talk to you about Jesus and I want to do it with gentleness and respect because I'm no better than you and it's only God's power that has come and changed me. So we start from this place of humility that says, God, it's only your grace that you chose me. And then we, we cherish Romans 1.16, which says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You see, the power's here. And the power is from God and it's His gospel. And our job is to, in faith, trusting the Lord, like Sally, say, will I step out? And so often, if we're honest, in our American context, it's uncomfortable. We don't want to do it. It, it, it can feel uncomfortable to say, what, what, what is your faith? 
Do you believe anything beyond this life? Are you, are you, do you go to a church? That can feel difficult for us. But to be willing to do it, to know that in this book is the power, because it's the me- this book has the message of the gospel, the message that can change lives. You know, right after the service, we're going to have the discipleship hour, and you are going to hear about how you can share your faith. And I would say for me personally, there's two reasons I struggle with sharing my faith, two primary reasons at least. One is, if I'm honest, I don't always know what to say. I mean, I can lead, I can point people to verses all day, but I don't always know how to get into the conversation. I don't always know how to steer the conversation. And so I'm someone who would say, yeah, I'm in greater need of equipping and training on how to share Jesus with other people. And that's going to happen during the discipleship hour and starting next Sunday, on Sunday night while the next gen is meeting, there's going to be further training for, uh, for you on how you can share your faith. We need to be equipped. But if I'm honest, there's probably an even greater barrier to why I struggle to share Jesus with other people. The other day, I was in a parking lot of a store, and I was in a hurry, you know, because like you, I have my, to go, my to-do list, and I have my calendar, and I need to be here at this time and here at another time. So I was leaving this store. I just had to run a quick errand, and I was exiting the parking lot, and it was one of those one, one-way exits in the parking lot. And I go to leave this store, and there in front of me, there's a car, and there's a person talking to the driver in, uh, you know, blocking my way. We've all had this experience, right? I know you've had this experience. You're ready to go somewhere. There's a car. Somebody's talking. And, you know, like you, I just sit there, and then I, I can tell that they see me. And so 20 seconds in, you know, I'm starting to tap my foot a little bit. You know, 30 seconds in, starting to get a little bit frustrated. And then, you know, it might have been a minute that uh, I just thought, you know, am I, am, I, am I just stuck here? And then probably after a minute or so, the person scooted out of the way a little bit. And I was able to do that, you know, kind of slow going around the person. And I'll tell you, I was real tempted to want to give the driver the look. You know about that look? It's called the fussy look. The God bless you look, bless your heart look. You know, the, I wanted to give them the look because two minutes of my life had just been disrupted and it felt like the person had been rude to me. But in the moment, I said, I'm not going to do that. Lord, I know you don't want me to do that. So as I drove by, I, I looked at the person. I said, I'm going to smile and I'm going to wave at this person. And I drove by and, you know, we're five feet away from each other. And I, I smiled and I waved at the person. And the lady, it was wonderful. She looked back, she biggest smile on her face. She smiled and she looked at me and she waved at me. The whole thing took two seconds. And I pulled out of the parking lot. And what hit me like a brick wall was, I wonder if this lady knows Jesus. I wonder, I wonder who she is. I wonder what her life is like. I wonder if anyone's told her the gospel. And for five seconds, I think I saw her the way God sees her. A person made in God's image, 
a person he loves, a sinner who's lost that needs his grace. And for probably five seconds, I felt like I had the heart of God for that person. No clue if she knows the Lord. We need to, church, ask for the heart of God. That is the single biggest thing that will make us evangelists. Even more than the techniques, even more than the right questions to ask, even more than the right verses to have ready, and we need all of that. We need to be willing to break out of our to-do lists and our schedules and all the things that we're focused on and see people as God sees them, as God saw us as lost sinners Sheep without a shepherd. I love the verses that talk about Jesus' compassion. He looks out and Jesus sees people as sheep without a shepherd. And he loves them. And instead of seeing people in our categories of do they agree with me or do they not agree with me or whatever, however we divide people, can we see people around us And say, we live in a world where people are lost, confused, broken, angry, blinded by greed, lust, envy, and a thousand other things, enslaved to sin, and what they need is what the same thing that we receive, the power of the gospel, to come and to change their lives. Friends, that's our calling. That's what God wants for us. I know we can look around and feel discouraged when we see our culture. I look around and I feel discouraged sometimes. But at the end of the day, we've got the message that the world needs the most. The only message that can bring eternal life. We have it. We know where we're going to go when we die. We're not afraid of that day. For the Christian, this life is the closest that we will ever get to hell. Do you know that? This life is the closest you will ever get to hell. But for the lost person, this life is the closest they will ever get to heaven. And so our calling, friends, with joy, with expectation, with hope, is to go and take this message to a world that needs it and to trust that God is going to use us just as he worked in our lives through all the different people that touched you, God is going to use us to change this world. Let's go with the gospel to a world that needs it. And like Robert Murray McShane, the Scottish preacher who came up with that one-year Bible reading plan that so many of you know about, like him, let us say these words. Whether the world thinks us wise or mad, the cause of God and of human souls is the cause in which we have embarked with all the energies of our being. Let's go. Lord God, we pray that you would make us a going people. Give us a heart to see people as just like us, in need of your love, in need of the gospel. Oh Lord, help us to arise from whatever slumbers we may be in 
For how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. The good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.